Welcome to the Dissolving Fear Podcast, where anxiety and doubt don't run the show. You do. So let's dissolve some fear up in here and make room for growth. Dissolve and evolve. I'm your host, Alyssa, bringing you tools, practices, and inspirational interviews to build your forward momentum so that you can make the rest of your life the best of your life, full of whatever it is that you value and desire. I've been a resilience coach for over a decade and a Kripalu yoga teacher for over 20 years. So many of these episodes focus on nurturing yourself in order to maximize your potential. Follow this podcast. You'll love the results. Loving life is what we're all about here on the podcast and at MissAlyssa.com. Enjoy the show. Before we dive into my interview with Brenda Winkle, I just want to say we talk about Bessel van der Kolk, and I put a link in this episode description to a really cool video where he talks about various proven ways to heal trauma, and one way to heal trauma is psychedelics. So I just want to preface this interview by saying that I poke fun at myself for never trying psychedelics. And I left the little joke in there because I think it's funny and I think I'm a little funny and I don't mean to offend anyone when I talk about why I've never tried psychedelics. If you've tried them or if you rely on them as a way to treat anxiety or trauma, I think it's perfectly great. I love Bessel van der Kolk and he talks all about how psychedelics help people recover and heal from trauma. And so the link in the episode description is a link to the video with Bessel. It's a really good video. And I hope you enjoy us talking about being highly sensitive people and also that combination of trauma and being a highly sensitive person. We touch on that. Brenda and I do talk about various ways to keep yourself feeling healthy, whole, and strong and resilient if you're a HSP, highly sensitive person. So check out the interview and enjoy. Well, Brenda, thanks for coming back to the podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you back here on Dissolving Fear. And I've been looking forward to our interview all day. Thank you for having me, Alyssa. I love having a chance to have a conversation with you. Yeah. And So I thought we'd have a conversation about empathy and what it means to be a highly sensitive person and touch on those things. Um, You're the first guest I've ever invited back for a second interview. And I just felt like our first interview could have gone on forever. You're such (laughs) a wealth of information when it comes to personal empowerment and growth, as well as when it comes to healing and connecting with that voice inside of us that knows what we want to say yes to in life. And you're a coach who helps people, especially highly sensitive people, get their yeses and no's straightened out. (laughs) Yeah, just go ahead and tell us a little bit about it. Well, I'd love to. First of all, I just want to say thank you for having me back on the podcast. It really means a lot to me. And I, I do work with highly sensitives and empaths. And so here's something that might be interesting for your listeners to know. In 1997, there was a research study 
That was a neurological research study that revealed 20% of the population has more neurotransmitters and neuroreceptors than the other 80% of the population. And because of that, the term highly sensitive came out of that study and became kind of the pop culture way to describe the sensations of having more actual sensitivity in the brain. So a highly sensitive person, um, it manifests in several different ways. One way can be that they actually have more heightened sensory input. For example, maybe they hear things in a way that is different from the other people. Maybe they're more sensitive to sound, or maybe they are a very sensitive taster and certain flavor profiles are almost intolerable to them. Maybe there are certain textures that somebody just can't stand to have near their skin, or some people have a sensory sensitivity to every sensory input. And I just wanna say that this is not the same thing as sensory processing disorder. This is just more sensory input because there's more receptors in the brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's important to note because I'm a licensed special ed teacher, but I spent my last 10 years coaching kids with adverse childhood experiences, ACEs and adversity. So I know what it's like to work with students with autism and sensory processing disorder. And yes, it's a little different than being highly sensitive. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. You know, there can be some carryover, some crossover, but they are two different things. So when it comes to being highly sensitive and getting our yeses and nos straightened out so that we can set boundaries and stop overextending ourselves, I liked what you said. I saw you on your Instagram. You were saying that we're, when we're sensitive, we're also sensitive to criticism and we're sensitive emotionally. So when we are sensitive we try to avoid criticism by becoming perfect or people pleasing. And the perfectionism is actually a way we're just trying to avoid feeling criticized and feeling emotional or hurt. That's exactly it. Yes. Yes. And so this research study revealed that there, the part of these neurotransmitters job is to bring in awareness of the emotions and cues, both body language cues and facial expression cues into the brain of the highly sensitive person. And the highly sensitive person is really responsive to the facial expressions and body language of people that they love in a way that they almost can feel and sense those emotions. And they might make decisions based on the emotional states of the people that they love. And that's where the people pleasing comes in. So does being highly sensitive make you more prone to codependency? You know, I don't know that the research would necessarily support that, but anecdotally, I believe that it certainly can. Because if in your system, you become physically uncomfortable when someone around you is having an emotional experience that you don't like, that doesn't feel good in your system, you'll do anything to ease their discomfort. Because if you know that by setting a boundary, the person that you're setting the boundary with isn't going to love the boundary and you don't have energetic hygiene, meaning you're taking on their emotions in your system, then it becomes actually self-serving to make sure that that person is happy. Yeah. And I can see how we could walk away from a bad relationship 
where they're draining your energy and your partner's dramatic and it's exhausting for you. But then we also get into relationships that we can't just walk away from, like parenting. So if you're parenting a difficult child, you are sensitive to their needs. You know, you're even more sensitive to your kids' needs. So that can be challenging for highly sensitive people. And then as a teacher, I felt like I had every year a caseload of students who had behaviors. And I felt codependent at times because I just was waiting for the next blow up. And so in that position as a teacher, I felt often like highly sensitive to the needs of my students. Exactly. And especially in your role as a teacher, I also have a background in education. I spent 26 years in the classroom. And I really feel like our current school system is dependent upon their teachers having a level of codependency. And I think that we teach that to teachers, (laughs) that this is how you're going to survive. And I would argue that you can still be an effective teacher and not be codependent, but it requires understanding how to protect your system from the emotional states and blowups of the people around you, whether those are students, partners, or your spouses, or parents of the kids that you're teaching. And so that's really what I do is help people understand how to create that energetic hygiene. Mm -hmm. And yes, I'm excited to talk about what it takes to overcome overwhelm. And I'd like to talk about zipping up your energy at some point. And because I had that practice written down that I know you love to talk about and I love to do. And it's interesting, though, when we talk about overcoming overwhelm, um, I also feel like there are so many positive aspects to being a sensitive person because I'm a sensitive person. And so I do think our sensitivity can be a superpower for a lot of reasons. Do you have anything that comes to mind when you think about sensitivity as a superpower? I think it is our superpower. I think you're exactly right. Because of our sensitivity, we have other input that perhaps the 88% of the people who aren't highly sensitive don't have which means that we have more information to make decisions on. We have more information to inform what we think is right. And we also have more information when we're communicating with our loved ones. And that's so powerful. As long as we create that sense of hygiene so that we don't feel like we're overwhelmed with the, in, the sensory input. Yeah, it can kind of make us more intuitive. Um, I like being extra sensitive physically. Like, I love working out and getting, like, a rush of adrenaline during a workout. And during yoga, I just love, like, tuning into my breath. And I feel like I can really be in the moment with my senses as a highly sensitive person. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the other ways that being highly sensitive can really be a superpower is if if you are in any kind of creative field and really every field is creative when you think about it, you can use that high sensitivity and your intuition to really inform things. Like you could use it in marketing. You could use it in copywriting. You could use it in art or content creation. And so I think having these abilities to really tune in are so powerful and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because our emotions are information, and then we gather information through our five senses, and then we just feel things more strongly when we're highly sensitive, which 
I enjoy. So we have more neurotransmitters than the average Joe. That's part of the reason we take more sensory information. Okay. Yeah. And then one of the other things that is, is really characteristic of highly sensitive people, and you mentioned this, is that highly sensitive people dislike negative feedback. And in many cases, not all, but in many cases, a highly sensitive person will also have escalated emotions, meaning that they feel things very deeply. So if you've ever heard someone say you're too much or you're feeling too much or you're being overly dramatic, it's possible that that's actually a symptom of high sensitivity. I get overwhelmed a lot more often than I get like super anxious. Sometimes I do things and avoid things out of overwhelm, even more than out of anxiety. I just know it's going to be a little exhausting. And so things and experiences and places can be exhausting and overwhelming for me. More so now at 43 than even in the past. Oh, that that hits for me too. I feel like as soon as I turn 40, all of the things that I had tried to sort of disown were coming to the forefront. And it was impossible for me to ignore that I had heightened intuition, that I had heightened sensory input, that I had um, heightened sensitivity. And really, we don't want to act out of reactivity. We want to act in alignment with our own values and what we love and not people please out of empathy or a high sensitivity. So in your professional opinion, as a coach and healer, what are some tools and practices that sensitive people can use in order to function at their full potential and live their best lives? Well, there are so many things. And I think the first thing that I would say is, if you know that you have a sensitivity in a particular area, meet your sensitivity where it is and take really loving care of it. So if you know that you are sensitive to sound, like let's say loud sounds make you feel stressed in your body, maybe scaffold that by creating a quiet place to do some work or a quiet place to escape. Or let's say you're sensitive to light. Maybe that means that you create really soft ambient lighting in your workspace and you have your workspace lit by lamps instead of overhead lighting. And so I think just number one, meet your sensitivity where it is. And if we can embrace it and love it, that takes so much bandwidth that we're spending kind of bracing against the things we don't like away and we start to feel better. So that would be number one is like, stop making it bad that you feel this way and just give yourself what you want and what you need. Yeah, totally. And it's so interesting. Like I'm single and I feel like if I ever got married again, I could not marry someone whose idea of relaxing was like watching loud TV with like the ceiling lights on. That would be like the worst marriage (laughs) in in the world. (laughs) I need someone to do yoga and meditate with like, that would just be the worst to come home from work or come home and like have somebody with the TV on and all the lights on. That sounds horrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I relate to that. I do like a well lit space, but not having the lights in my eyes. So yes, that, that resonates. Yeah. And personally, I love yoga and meditation because it lets me turn my senses inward. And so it gives those five senses a break from the outside world 
And certain practices like yoga and meditation are a nice little retreat inward into my own body and breath. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can bring some of what yoga and meditation teaches you into any space. In fact, we can do it right now. And so I invite you just to sit tall or stand tall, depending on your situation. And then bring your attention back into the area around your spinal column, which I call your central channel. And that's this, the really the space where all your chakras line up. So just bring your attention inward into that spinal column. There you go. I can feel and sense that that's, that's happening for you. Add a little breath to that. There you go. There you go. And now you can actually feel and sense you have a little bit of a buffer between you and the space around you, right? Yeah. Yeah. So coming back home into our bodies, into our central channel, it sounds like it's out there, but it's actually not. It's called embodiment. And when we can get back into our bodies, all of a sudden, the sensory input from everywhere around us, it's actually more manageable because we're in our bodies, then we can make decisions around, oh, I'm going to go turn that light off or, oh, my sweater is scratchy. I'm going to go change it or whatever that might be. And having a strong energy field from the bottom up along your spine is kind of like having a strong core. Like a strong core helps us to feel strong and walk around with poise and confidence. Same with the strong energetic core. Absolutely. And then when you have that strong energetic core, because you've created this, this it's a buffer between you and other people where now you understand what's yours and what's theirs. And then from that place of coherence, you can make some beautiful decisions around what is really right for you. Yeah. And we can know where we end and the world begins or what, where the world ends and we begin. Just being in our body, like you said, embodiment will help. Yes. And I love your practice of zipping up your energy field. So if I feel overstimulated or overwhelmed, I like to zip up my energy field or if I'm losing track of my boundaries. So I start at the base of my spine. I visualize a zipper zipping up the front of my body to the top of my head, to the crown of my head. And I just breathe in a deep inhalation, zipping up my energy and I straighten up my core and I just feel so strong and tall in my body. Exactly. And that zipping up, is so powerful, especially in chaotic, stressful, or emotional places when it feels like it's hard to determine where the energy is coming from. That zipping up can be really, really supportive. Yes, like a crowded airport or a chaotic kindergarten room. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I know you've said breath work is actually the secret to your success and into your ability to get out of your own way and embrace success as an entrepreneur. Why is breath work important? So breath work is one of the oldest healing modalities that we have. And we see this in the Vedic traditions, in yogic traditions, we see it all over the world. And there are many things that happen on the physiological level when we take conscious control of the breath, relieving stress, releasing stuck emotionality from the body, healing trauma, 
it's just, it's so profound. And I have been using breath in my practices since about 2010. And I didn't realize what I was doing was called breath work until fairly recently, I would say the last two years. And then in the last nine months, I've really done a deep dive on breath work and just became a certified trauma-informed breathwork facilitator through Pause Breathwork in April. And I have experienced the deepest healing that I've experienced with any of my healing modalities. And the best part is that once you know how to consciously control the breath, you always have access to it because we all have breath. Yeah. Is there any little breathing practice that you could teach everyone on the podcast today or share? So something that is a really quick way to reduce stress and release anxiety and eliminate some stuck emotionality is something that in the breathwork world, we call the halo active breath. I'd also like to call it the candle breath, because if you teach the candle breath to your kids, no matter what age your kids are, they can use it too. So if we were doing this with adults, I would tell you to breathe in through your nose and out through the mouth with a slow exhale. If I was teaching this to a child, I would ask them to place their index finger right in front of their mouth and pretend like it's a candle. Now, I grew up in the Midwest and my mom has always set a really beautiful table. And on the table, you could guarantee that there's a beautiful cloth tablecloth. And when we were blowing out candles as a kid, we had to be really, really careful not to blow wax everywhere. So it had to be a long, sustained breath. And so when you're teaching breath work to kids, you want to tell them, don't blow the wax on the tablecloth. So you want to breathe in and then exhale through the mouth. Let's do about six of those together, shall we? Sure. Okay, let's go. We'll breathe in. And exhale. Two more. So even with those six breaths, which is really not very much, you can already feel it, right? Totally. It's so soothing and just clarifying. That is so awesome because anyone can do breath work. You know, I found breath work when I did my yoga teacher training at Kripalu. I had to do an entire hour of yoga before we got to the breath work sometimes. <laughs> but really, yeah. anyone can do breath work. Anyone can do breath work. Anyone of any age, I would say uh, three and above. You might be able to get your under three-year-olds to do breath with you, like a candle breath or a square breath or something. But sometimes a two-year-old doesn't want to sit still for that long. But I've done it with kids as young as three. The key is to keep it short, you know, like maybe four to six breaths for a three-year-old. And then you can expand on that as kids age. 
Yeah, and you can always offer to take your kids on a walk or to jump on the trampoline with them. Those types of things get your kids breathing. It's not breath work, but just some deep breathing is so helpful for us. And I don't think breath work gets enough credit, especially like here in Colorado where everyone's really focused on psychedelics and marijuana. Breath work is so powerful. It is so powerful. And in fact, if you if you work with a facilitator who's breathing you for longer than eight or nine minutes, you're actually experiencing a psychedelic experience. And there's a lot of scientific research that suggests you are the drug when you <laughs> use breath work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as a highly sensitive person, I already feel like I'm tripping half the time. Like I don't need... <laughs> Like the lights are already too bright. I don't need substances or drugs to like tune into my senses or tap into a higher consciousness. Um, I can't even count the number of times I've been lying on my yoga mat at the end of a yoga class with tears streaming down my face for various reasons. I feel almost like it's like releasing the pain and suffering I see in the world, or it could be due to beautiful music in the class or just a physical, emotional release, like a physical release of emotions trapped in my body. Absolutely. You're 100% right. Sometimes it's not even anything we consciously are aware of. We're just releasing. Yeah. And I know that tons of psychiatrists like Bessel van der Kolk, he's one of my favorites. You know, he agrees that psychedelics help people transcend fear and trauma and see themselves with compassion. But I also feel like yoga and breath work and Bessel agrees. Bessel also lists yoga as one of the highly effective ways to transcend fear and trauma. Absolutely. Yoga was a part of my journey healing from PTSD. In fact, that was the first modality I really dove into. So yes, I completely support that. Yeah, because you had a traumatic marriage and there's shame in that. Whenever we experience trauma, we tend to feel shame. And then when we find a modality like breathwork, yoga, or psychedelics, something that helps us look at our trauma and at ourselves with compassion and objectivity that can really help us heal. Absolutely. I do have the contact information of a psychedelic assisted therapist. If people are interested, I don't personally do that, but I, I know someone reputable, very skilled who can support people in those journeys. I just wanted to mention that if you have kids breathing through their mouth, that's an activating breath. And that, that's not a bad thing or a good thing. That's a neutral thing. But if you want your kids to calm down, you want them to make sure those inhales are going in through their nose. Because if they're inhaling through their mouth, it's going to activate them. So that might be silly behavior or hyper behavior or just being a little bit rambunctious. And so you can also use the breath to give them energy by you know, creating a, a, an open mouth breath, breathing in and out through the mouth, or you can help them calm down by using the nose as a place to inhale. Mm, yeah, good point. Round up your children and tell them which way to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> through the nose, like long, slow inhalations and exhalations in through the nose, out through the mouth. That's going to calm them down. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. And then when they breathe in through their mouth and jump on the trampoline, that's going to wind them up a little bit. It is. It is. And you know, the best thing about breath work is that if we model it to the kids, we're experiencing it too. Yeah. Modeling is the best way to teach a kid anything because they're watching what you do and more is caught than (laughs) taught. So you know, even if you don't tell them what to do, you can just start doing something and they'll start, they'll, they'll look at you like, what are they doing? Yeah. Yeah. So um, one of the things that I discovered really recently is a sleep mask. And I didn't realize that a sleep mask would help me sleep so much better, but I'm, I'm highly sensitive and you don't know, have the sensory input for sight, sound, taste, touch, smell. And I have found that I'm sleeping so much more deeply with a sleep mask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any um, advice for those of us who are highly sensitive and recovering from trauma? Because I think that's that was you at some point recovering from a traumatic marriage. And I think that um, it can be hard for sensitive people to process trauma, even harder than normal for sensitive people to process trauma and adversity because life might already feel like it's too much, too fast, too soon to take in all at once when you have sensitivity issues. But then when you have to take in adversity and trauma, it can make it really difficult for us to process. Absolutely. And so one thing that I would say is don't try to do it alone. And I'm not saying that you don't have the capability of doing it alone. Of course you do. But doing it in community is truly supportive because there's so much shame associated with trauma that when we can be really brave and vulnerable and heal inside a community, whether that's with a practitioner or a friend or through a breathwork course or a yoga class, whatever it might be, there's really profound healing that is, that is possible. And when you are healing in community, you'll heal faster and heal more completely simply because it eliminates a lot of that shame when you realize, Oh, I'm not the only one that feels that way. Mm-hmm. And so that's the first thing that I would say. And the second thing that I would say is be really gentle with yourself. And if you notice that something is causing you friction, And by friction, what I mean is you're thinking about being bugged by something, find a way to have it bug you less, whether that is an uncomfortable pair of pants or a light that's too bright, really taking gentle care of yourself. Yeah, I just went through my closet and got rid of like a lot of my clothes that I didn't love, that didn't feel right, that didn't fit right anymore. And it was really liberating because you're not going to put on something that's uncomfortable or makes you feel uncomfortable and go out into the world. Exactly. And when you do, you're going to feel bad about it. I remember one time I was a teacher, fairly new teacher, and I had a very low self-esteem, had a lot of incredibly negative self-talk. This was like in the early 2000s. And I remember putting on this shirt that I really didn't like. And I remember thinking, oh, it's not going to make a difference. It turned out to be picture day. And I had my picture for the whole year with that shirt that I didn't love on. And I made a promise to myself that if I didn't love something well enough to be photographed in it and have that photograph last, that I wasn't going to keep that item of clothing. 
And that's a promise that I've kept to myself. And it, it just feels really good to tell yourself you matter that much, you know? Yeah, totally. And I know in your practice, you do theta healing. So I wasn't sure if you wanted to talk a bit about theta healing. Oh, I'd love to. Theta healing is a meditation technique that is collaborative. It was discovered by Viana Stiebel in 1997. Viana discovered that she had a kind of bone cancer in her leg and it was not treatable. And she began to meditate in a, a theta state, kind of accidentally, but found that she was just feeling so much better that she continued to do it. And she ended up completely healing the bone cancer. And after that happened, her doctors were shocked. And so was she to a certain extent. And she decided to see if she could replicate it. So she began to really dive into the practice, eventually ended up offering sessions and then teaching people the technique. And now there are more than 65,000 theta healers worldwide that are trained in this really profound healing technique. That's a collaborative meditation technique that allows you to get into the beliefs, healing on the spiritual level, the physical level, the genetic level, and the history level. And it's really a profound healing. Mm -hmm. And I've heard of theta. Okay, now that you're talking about it, I've heard of theta brainwaves before. Because that's like the waves of creativity, dreaming, meditation, non-sleep, deep rest, when we deliberately decompress and we're in a state of relaxation, but not sleeping, aware relaxation, that's the theta state. So it would make sense that theta healing is kind of like leading theta meditations that benefit people. Exactly. And with a trained practitioner, you can be in the theta state and wide awake and alert. And that's where the healing occurs. Yeah. Because beta is like totally conscious, totally alert, thinking, maybe even excited. And then alpha is mentally and physically relaxed. And then theta is deep relaxation, creativity, insight, meditation. And that's where the magic lies, apparently. Yeah, that's where the magic lies. So you can shift beliefs that are holding you back. And it, it's just, it's a very, it's really magical. Mm -hmm. And the theta is slower than the beta and the alpha. The theta is like in between being awake and calm and being in a deep sleep. That's the theta. Right. It is, it is not a sleep state and it, but it, you can be fully awake and in the theta brainwave state, um, just with a little practice. Nice. Yeah. So practicing theta meditation will reduce stress and help your creativity as well. Absolutely. And, you know, it's really interesting in theta healing, we talk a lot about the body knows the truth because your higher self is connected to your body. So in your thinking mind, some people call that your ego, it's really easy to think that you know what you believe but your body really knows. And so we have something called muscle testing in theta healing, and we can actually shift beliefs using the theta healing meditation technique. So for example, if you really believe that you are deserving of love and abundance, but there's a little part of you, maybe from a past life, maybe from early in, in this life that doesn't think you're worth it, 
you'll kind of stop and start and mm -hmm. you'll get in your own way a little bit. And Theta Healing can help eliminate that stop start. And you can go to the Think Institute or ThetaHealing.com and there's a, a worldwide registry of Theta Healers. And I offer Theta Healing and it's all remote. I've been remote since 2017. That's awesome. Well, Brenda, any last words of wisdom for us? I just wanted to cover what it's like to be highly sensitive, tools and practices for us um, when we are highly sensitive. And we talked about zipping up your energy field, moving your body, using breath work to connect with yourself and get regulated. Yeah. I wasn't sure if I was missing anything. Well, you know, I think that, that this is a great tip of the iceberg <laughs> for living as a highly sensitive. Um, because first thing is to know that there's nothing wrong with you, that you actually have more ability than you know, and just learning to love and embrace that and, and eliminate the thinking that it's a liability. Yeah, just get curious about all of your feelings as they come, because you know, feelings, emotions come and go, our senses of the world come and go, and listen to your senses. If it's super sunny out, I'm going to walk over into the shade and find some relief. So you can react to your world in ways that suit you. If you're highly sensitive to somebody who is really dramatic and chaotic, you can remove yourself from their presence. You don't have to let them get you worked up. Exactly. Exactly. And the more that you learn to tune in to your own central channel, you might not even have to leave. You can, you can just be like, oh, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting yeah. that that's how you're behaving? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I can zip up my energy all day long if I go to the elementary school, but at some point I need to step outside and like decompress and get in a quiet space. <laughs> Quiet is good. It's a reset, right? Yeah. But for those of us, when you can't leave a situation, say you work in a busy airport or, you know, you are teaching a class full of rambunctious kids for an hour, you are there for the hour. So you have to find other ways to keep yourself feeling strong and not overstimulated. And exactly. so just knowing that about yourself is important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That term didn't even exist when we were young, highly sensitive person. I mean, it, it probably had a different meaning when we were young. <laughs> oh, it did. I was born in the 70s. And so I was out of college by the time that this was a term that people were using. And I don't even think in 1997, they called it highly sensitive. It was called something different. And then pop culture took control of it and turn, turned it into highly sensitive people. And that's only been in the last, you know, maybe five to seven years. Yeah, and the acronym's pretty popular, HSP, right? Right, right. But like you said, it didn't exist when we were kids. Yeah. No, you were like a sissy. <laughs> you needed to. Right. I mean, seriously, some parents, they don't parent highly sensitive children with a nurturing hand, some of them. Some of them tell the kids they'll grow out of it or get over it or don't be a baby. I've heard parents tell children that. Right. And what happens, even if the behaviors change, it's not that the sensitivity has gone away. It's that the child has shut down. Yes, 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 yes. And so it, you do want to create an environment for your kids 
or for your spouse where they feel safe expressing their emotions and sensitivity and they don't feel like they need to ignore that part of themselves. Exactly. Exactly. And it really comes back to love, right? Loving ourselves, loving others, and just allowing the experience to be what it is. Well, Alyssa, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. I love having conversations with you. As a former teacher, I just feel like there's just so much good stuff. So thank you. Yeah, um, I think we have a lot of real world experience working with <laughs> the public and children and yeah. Yeah, exactly. So my website is probably where you can find everything that I forget to tell you. And that is brendawinkle.com, B-R-E-N-D-A-W-I-N-K-L-E. And I'm on Instagram at Brenda Winkle. I'm on LinkedIn at Brenda Winkle. Well, Brenda, thank you so much for joining us. And I love thank keeping in touch. You. Thank you for having that completes our episode if today's content felt true for you follow the podcast today or leave a rating and review on apple podcasts the mission here is a world where fear doesn't control us we feel it heal it and let go to grow have an amazing day fill it with opportunities to dissolve fear nurture yourself and enjoy life thank you for being here